1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Invisible Hate. I'm Assad Bhatt.
2: And I'm Sadia Khan.
1: And our story today takes us to the underground, to the subway tunnels of New York City in December of 1984. It's actually late December 1984, just two days before Christmas Eve. It's a typical winter afternoon in the city. Some would call it bustling. You know the scene. New Yorkers and tourists are both rushing past each other, trying to finish their holiday preparations. Below the surface though, something else is happening. Bernard Goetz is on the Downtown Express 2 train and he doesn't appear to be in the holiday spirit. At his feet, four African-American teenage boys. All of them have been shot and are bleeding pretty badly. The subway train has itself erupted in chaos, but Goetz is at the center of it, stoic and calm, and a gun still in his hand when the train stops in between stations gets gets out leaving the victims behind he disappears into the dark tunnel this is invisible hate welcome back to invisible hate a weekly true crime podcast in which Sadia and I attempt to uncover the ugly truth behind various hate crimes both recent and historical
2: Yes, Asad, you're absolutely right. Many of the cases that we discuss involve crimes committed against minority groups. Our goal is to determine through a discussion of the nuances and complexities of these unfortunate incidents, whether or not these transgressions can be considered hate crimes. While some of these offenses appear to have clear-cut answers, many do not. But before we get to today's case, Asad, how was your week?
1: Yeah, my week was good. I'm trying to think of what happened. I think, you know, I've been kind of consumed with this story that's going on in Oregon this week, which is there's a serial killer on the loose, or I guess they caught him. Uh, Sadly, I wanted to present this information to you. So basically, this guy was in jail for a while. And then because he helped fight fires, you know, this I guess there's a program in which inmates can Volunteer to fight uh, forest hmm. fires. He got his sentence commuted and was pardoned or whatever, at least early, and then ended up allegedly killing four women afterwards. And so oh my I thought, gosh, <laughs> I mean, crazy, right? But, you know, this idea of using inmates to fight fires I thought is really. Interesting. I guess I had heard about it before, but didn't know too many details. Have you heard about that before?
2: I haven't, said but I am less concerned about using inmates to fight fires, and I'm more concerned about what happened once he got out.
1: Yeah, I think they're still trying to piece all that information together, and basically, yeah, there are four to six young women that all were killed, and the details haven't been released. I mean, maybe by the time this airs, more details will have been released, but yeah, it's just one one of those things where he should have been kept in prison. And it's just sad.
2: I said, my heart goes out to the families of the victims. And I'm telling you, the more I consume true crime and I hear about these crimes, the more panicky and paranoid I'm getting. I can't tell you how scared I am at nights sometimes. And I, I don't know how to calm myself down anymore.
1: Yeah, I think we need to focus sometimes on the good people helping out the victims in in cases like this.
2: You're absolutely right. Focusing on good people. I like that. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I don't have an interesting anecdote or story to share. But right before we started recording this episode, you broke your glasses. So I I was feeling really bad because (laughs) I wear glasses. And if I broke my glasses, I would be freaking out.
1: I don't freak out partly because I expect these gra- glasses to break. I, I buy the cheapest glasses I can oh. find online. And so if they last me a year, that's a good thing. And then probably time to update them. I, I go to $39 glasses.com. They are not a sponsor of this <laughs> podcast, but maybe they should be in the in the future. Absolutely. Um, and and just I'll just buy another uh, prescription, you know set of glasses later so
2: how often do you change glasses like is it oh, every that's... month every two oh. months
1: <laughs> <laughs> no no I, I would say i would say pro- i probably put it in order for new either glasses or prescriptions on glasses you know once every 18 months or so
2: that's not bad i it?
1: yeah and you know it's, I'd, I'd rather not spend the 500 dollars that you can you know you would spend at like a lens crafters or whatever and get my 40 50 dollar Glasses or sunglasses uh, online.
2: Yeah, that sounds smart.
1: How much do you spend?
2: I was hoping you wouldn't ask me this. Oh Asad, no! <laughs> but we we have good insurance. That's how <laughs> yeah, I will okay, carry on. Fair out. enough. Right. All right. Yeah. That's Anyways, I said let's get started.
1: It's one p.m. on the afternoon of December twenty second, nineteen eighty four. Four teenagers: Barry Allen, Troy Canty, James Ramzier, and Daryl Camby, are boarding the Downtown Express 2 train in New York City. The four are headed to Pace University Arcade in downtown Manhattan, where, as one of them later admits in his testimony, they plan on stealing quarters from the machines using the three screwdrivers they are carrying with them. On the train, though, they sit at the end of the car, and, you know, they're typical boisterous teenagers, as teens would be, you know, as they're going about their business and there are about 15 to 20 other people scattered throughout the car at around one thirty p.m a person named bernard getz gets on the train at the 14th street station he sits down near the group of boys and you know getz is blonde slightly built and he's a 37 year old white man and he's running late he's meeting up with friends who are going to just be hanging out getting drinks and generally catching up before the holidays as one would at this time of year. So Getz sits down, and that's when Canty asks how he's doing. And Getz kind of mumbles that he's doing fine, but he keeps his gaze down to avoid talking to anyone. You know, we've all kind of been in this situation where we don't want to engage with with other people. And then at least one of the teens approaches him and demands five dollars from him. And then according to Getz, two of the boys come up to him on the left and two of them on the right, basically surrounding him. But this Sadia is disputed by one of the boys who says that it was just Candy who approached Getz and the three other teens didn't surround him or ask for money at all. According to the New York Times, eyewitnesses provide varying accounts on the number of teenagers involved. This adds to the confusion as to what actually happened. And then there is also a disagreement, Sadia, as to how Canty asked for the money. According to Canty's own initial testimony, he merely asks, hey mister, can I have $5 while standing a few feet away from Getz. But in later testimony, he actually admits that it's possible he demanded that money uh, by saying something like, you know, give me five dollars. Obviously, this is different than what Getz remembers. He claims that the money was demanded from him, and then complicating the picture even more, one of the other teens, Ramzier, says that Canty was bent over Gets, like a foot from his face.
2: Wow! I said there are so many different iterations of what happened that day, and I'm not surprised because human brain operates. In weird ways, right? for sure. And Gets may have been approached by two or more of the teenagers, but it also seems that Canty alone may have approached him, so we don't have facts. Instead, we have varying accounts of what may have happened. And that could really, really change the course of this case and how everybody else sees it, right? Totally. And then finally, Canty may have asked him politely for $5 or he may just have demanded, which is a huge difference in narratives and how a person would behave in response to somebody either demanding $5 or politely asking for $5.
1: Yeah, for sure, Sally. that's definitely the case. It's difficult to sort out these particular details, but regardless of what actually happened, it's clear that Getz believes that he was in danger. And Getz says that Canty has a smile on his face and a glean in his eyes, and that leads him to believe that he's about to be mugged. And in that moment, he decides that he's going to fight back. Here is Getz on his videotape confession.
0: Now, for combat, you have to be cold-blooded. And I was. It was at that point I decided I was gonna kill them all, murder
1: them all, do anything. Yeah, so Salia, it looks like, you know, words are repeated back and forth just basically along the lines of like you know Canty asking for five dollars and Gets kind of like saying what did you say and then kind of escalating a little bit and then you know before any of the boys can react Gets flies up out of his seat pulls a gun out from under his jacket and starts shooting and he's shooting as fast as he can. The first bullet strikes Troy Canty directly in the chest. He falls to the ground clutching his chest Barry Allen immediately runs up to see if Canty's alright and that's when he's shot in the back and then a third shot travels through James Ramzier's arm. It becomes lodged on his left side. The fourth bullet misses Daryl Kaby striking the wall of the car and, and then after these first four bullets are shot Gets then goes to check on each of the victims and he's checking on all of them Sadia so that he can make sure that they're incapacitated, that they can't do anything to him. Here he is again in his videotape confession.
0: I ran up to the first two to check them; who were on the ground, the first two that i had shot, and they were taken care of. It's all very cold-blooded, and this is going to offend everyone. I went back to the other two to check on them, and the fellow who was standing up, I was sure i had shot. It was fine.
1: And so as he's walking around, Getz walks up to KB and he finds that he hasn't been shot, you know, so there's no bullet wounds. Mm. And KB is literally cowering on the bench, grasping the seat and a look of terror on his face as, as you and I would yeah. both be like, you know, like just trying to make sure that, you know, you're safe. And then without hesitation, Getz raises his gun once more. And says to KB the following.
0: And I said, You seem to be doing all right. Here's another.
1: And then gets fires a fifth and final shot at point blank range. It hits KB in the lower back, and that shot severs his spinal cord. KB will never walk again.
2: I said, All of this is so incredibly unbelievable to me because, and this is something that we have discussed on previous episodes as well, the situation escalates from zero to hundred, but it seems like Gets wants to kill each and every teenager. It's not just the person who approached him, right? Yeah. So I'm sure there's something in his past or some kind of trauma that may have elicited this kind of response. Do we have any information?
1: Yeah, I think you're right, Sadia, and I think we'll get to that in a little bit. And to your point, like, you know, According to his memory, you know, all the teens were around him, you know, like surrounding, hovering over him. And that's what he remembers. And so it really escalated really quickly. And and the end result, of course, is just, you know, KB will never walk again. And so sadly, the other three teens actually make a full recovery, thankfully, miraculously. But it's that last shot that really is the most damaging. Um, Not only is KB permanently paralyzed, but While he's in the hospital, he temporarily lapses into a coma and he suffers significant brain damage that reduces his mental capacity to that of an eight year old. And he remains actually, Sadia, in the hospital for over a year after the shooting. And he currently actually now lives in public housing with his mother in the Bronx and he's confined to a wheelchair.
2: Wow, I said that's just awful. And I want to come back to the fifth shot where it gets probably considers himself not in danger anymore. That's how I see it. He has already wrongly terrified and incapacitated the so-called threat that he perceives. And so to me, this final shot, I said the fifth shot just seems incredibly cold-blooded and so unjustified. But again, I'm waiting for more information where yeah. we can make a determination why he felt the way he did.
1: Yeah, 100%.
2: So what does Getz do next?
1: At this point, you know, Getz has run out of bullets. And this is a huge relief, right? Like, because it seems like he would have kept on going if he had more bullets on him. But, you know, even without the bullets, Getz doesn't want to stop. He still looks uh, for more ways to hurt them. Like, and so Sadia, listen to this, what he has to say in this videotape confession. I wanted
0: to kill those guys. I wanted to name those guys. I wanted to make them sucker in every way I could. If I had more bullets, I would have shot them all again and again. The only, my problem was I ran out of bullets and I was, gonna, I was gonna gouge one of the guy's eyes out with my keys afterwards. The only reason I didn't do it is because he had changed his
1: look And so Getz's violent outburst finally comes to an end. He's left standing in the middle of the train car full of chaos. KB is screaming out in pain. He's yelling why did you shoot me? Why did you shoot me? The other passengers run for cover, fearing for their lives. It's really chaotic. Getz himself sees a woman passed out on the floor and goes to check if that woman is okay. He then checks on another woman who sits in shock, staring Blankly ahead. Meanwhile, the conductor Armando Soler he heard the gunfire and he uses the emergency brake to stop the train. The train slows to a stop in the middle of a tunnel. Oh wow! The conductor obviously then gets back to the car where this is all happening, and he sees Getz standing over the four teens with a pistol in his hand. Can you imagine? Celia <laughs> someone you know like approaching someone that's in this state? Like I, I can't believe the conductor did this, but. You know, the conductor comes up to to Getz and says, you know, he asks him if he's a cop. And Getz says no and refuses to hand over the gun. And so, not knowing what to do then, the conductor walks away from Getz. Basically, he's just, you know, going to wait for the police to come and take care of it all. Meanwhile, Getz sits down on a bench for a few seconds, trying to figure out what to do next. He knows that he's in deep trouble and he knows that it won't be long before the police arrive. And so he decides that it's now or never. He gets up, climbs down between the train cars, and runs through the dark subway tunnel to the next station, which is the Chamber Street station. He then pulls himself up onto the platform and walks out of the station. And with that, he successfully escaped the scene of the crime.
2: I said, I have so many thoughts here. First, gets is pretty aware of his surroundings because he goes to bystanders, checks on them to ensure that they are okay. So he is aware of what he's done and how it may impact people on that train. And after speaking to the conductor, which I assume he wasn't violent towards the conductor, he answered his question, he decides to just flee. So I assume his anger was specifically and exclusively targeted at these teenage boys and nobody else.
1: Yeah, it's it's really interesting that he's trying to help these two women, you know, on the train, right? And that when someone approaches him, like the conductor, he doesn't point his gun at the conductor, right? Like
2: He doesn't snap.
1: I think you're pointing out some really interesting inconsistencies.
2: What's even more fucked up is that nobody goes after him.
1: Yeah, nobody goes after him and by the time police and paramedics arrive, he's nowhere to be found. Sadia, let's take a quick break and when we get back, we will be discussing the victims and the perpetrator a little
0: bit more in depth. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. Alda, must not take yourself too seriously and
1: Sadia, I want to tell you a little bit more about the victims as much as we know. And so Mm. at the time of the shooting, Barry Allen, Troy Canty, and Daryl Kaby were all just 19 years old. James Ramzier had just turned 18. So all of them are teenagers, remember? Right. And they're all from the Bronx. And all four of them were actually high school dropouts. And they all had criminal arrest records for misdemeanor crimes.
2: Yeah, so it seems like several of these young men had a tough start and they got off on the wrong foot with the law and that to me is also concerning but regardless the truth of the matter is that these teenage boys ultimately did very little to bother gets to the point where he shot them
1: yeah that's exactly right
2: so why did he shoot them i said what elicited such an extreme and violent reaction from him do we have any information on that
1: yeah, and this is to your point earlier that, you know, something must have happened to him. Yeah, I think in order to understand Getz and his behavior, it's we gotta look at his past, right? And mm-hmm. so in many ways Getz is a pretty ordinary person, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, which Many of you will remember, he was born in 1947 in Queens, New York, and graduated from NYU in 1969 with a bachelor's degree in electrical and nuclear engineering. Oh, wow. He's a smart guy. Smart guy. Yeah, totally. And so sadly, he launched his own business calibrating electronic equipment in 1975 in New York City. Um, But this is where it gets a little bit dicey prior to the shooting. Getz had been mugged twice in New York City Hmm. and you know sadly this was not entirely uncommon at the time I don't know how much you know about it but you know New York City in the 80s had experienced unprecedented crime rates and so in 1981 Getz was mugged for a second time and this one was actually pretty violent he is uh, relentlessly beaten up by three African American men and that leaves him with a permanently damaged right knee and several other injuries. And so after the incident, obviously, he becomes angry and bitter, um, specifically about you know New York City crime. And he immediately applies for a permit to get a pistol from the New York City Police Department. The police reject his request, but Getz goes ahead and buys several pistols anyway. You know he's really determined not to be beaten up or robbed ever again, and from that day on, he illegally carries a concealed handgun with him everywhere he goes.
2: This is an important piece of information, I said, because given his history, it's quite possible that the trauma of these previous muggings played into Getz's extreme violent response. It kind of makes sense in a very weird warped way
1: yeah it's definitely possible you know that those previous muggings you know had this effect on him here's how he describes it in his videotaped confession you know he describes himself as someone who just snapped um here it is
0: if a person has to be reduced to this kind of an animal to survive in the city if you take a rat okay I was vicious, I don't deny it. I, I told the guys, I don't know if it's in that statement, but if you, if you take a rat and you corner it, and you, let's say just one time, you start poking it with, with red hot needles and the, react to, and the rat doesn't know how to react, and you do this, okay, and you wind up doing it again or, you know, perhaps again, and if once in a while a rat turns viciously on you, and just becomes a total vicious killer. Which is which is really what I was. What happened here is I snapped.
2: Wow, I said that's quite the analogy. It definitely seems as if Getz felt justified in what he did. Yet what is mind boggling to me, I said, is that he ran from the scene of the crime almost immediately, right? So if he thought that he was being attacked and this was basically an act of self-defense. He could have stayed there for police to arrive and explain his situation. But he flees, which to me is a bit shady. And it also indicates that he reacted really poorly. He could have handled it differently. He didn't have to shoot all the teenagers, right? He didn't have to shoot any of the teenagers. He could have spoken to them. He could have called the conductor, did something else.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, that we talk about this a lot in a lot of our cases. Yeah, why did he have to point the gun and shoot the gun at people? You know, he could have shot it at, in the air, he could have just waved the gun around. That would have gotten a lot of people's attention, right? And right. yeah, I think you're exactly right. And and I think you're, you make a good point about him leaving the scene. I hadn't really thought about that too much. But yeah, like in, in a lot of the other cases where people do claim, stand your ground. We don't see them running from the law, right? We, We see them being claiming self defense from the get go.
2: Exactly. Anyways, we are going to take a quick break. But when we return, we'll be discussing the aftermath of investigation and trials following the shooting. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So, Asad, what did Getz do after he fled the scene of the crime on December 22nd? And how was he ultimately caught?
1: Right. So, okay, back to December 22nd, 1984. Getz has just exited the Chamber Street station, the subway station in downtown Manhattan after shooting the 14s. He basically walks for a little bit and then flags a cab to go back to his apartment in the Greenwich Village part of Manhattan. He then rents a car and drives up to Bennington, Vermont. He basically wants to leave the state before the police start investigating. In Bennington, he burns the jacket that he was wearing the day of the shooting. He also dismantles his gun and scatters the pieces of the weapon in the woods. He spends the next few days wandering throughout New England, moving from one motel to the next. He thinks that he's in the clear, but that's not so. The New York Police Department had put out a description of the gunman that was involved. And according to the website Famous Trials, on December 26th, an anonymous hotline caller tells the NYPD that Getz matches that description. Three days later, Getz calls his neighbor and finds out that the police are looking for him. And so Getz decides to come clean and turn himself in. But he doesn't want to do that, Sadia, in New York City.
2: Why is that, Asad? What is wrong with doing it in New York City?
1: That I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about (laughs) New York City crime or police or, or whatever. But, you know, he ends up actually going back to New York to his apartment, picks up some clothes and some business papers, gives two of his guns to that neighbor for safekeeping, and then drives back to New England. This is all just fascinating to me that he would actually go back to the apartment and the fact that the apartment wasn't being watched by the police as well. Like (laughs) all of this just doesn't seem like making any sense. But anyway, at about noon on New Year's Eve, Getz turns himself in at the police headquarters in Concord, New Hampshire, telling him that he's the New York City subway shooter.
2: Finally, finally, I said
1: yeah so he was he was you know on the lam for whatever a week nine nine or ten days and so at the concord police station he admits to the shootings and then when the new york city police arrive they also interview him and he once again admits to having committed the crime and you know Savi he's like basically he's angry he blames the new york city police and legal systems for creating an environment in which one must resort to self-protection Mm-hmm. On January 3rd, a couple days later, Getz is brought back to New York City and is arraigned on four charges of attempted murder. He's put in the Rikers Island Jail for several weeks while he awaits information regarding his trial. And then later that month, a grand jury listens to his confessions and hears from several eyewitnesses. That jury, grand jury, decides to indict Getz on three charges of illegal possession of a weapon while refusing to indict him on any other charges including those of attempted murder and reckless
2: Listen, let's pause here for a second i have a question can you clarify what the difference is between an indictment and a conviction
1: yeah yeah that's actually a great question and something for people that are outside of america that want to know about our legal system so yeah so basically before a criminal trial in which one might be convicted or sentenced can even begin, a separate jury must agree on the exact charges that one is going to be tried for. So these formal charges are called indictments and establish the official grounds upon which the trial is going to be held.
2: So in being indicted, Getz wasn't being convicted of the crime, but merely officially charged so that a criminal trial could proceed, right?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, you know, a couple months later, in February, at the end of February, an attorney by the name of, of Rudolph Giuliani, oh who you my might know <laughs>
0: he was
1: an attorney at the time in the state's office decides not to proceed with a federal civil rights prosecution. He claims that there isn't enough evidence that race factored into Getz's motive.
2: Oh my gosh, I said he was an ass then and he's an ass now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably correct.
2: So basically, said things are working out in Getz's favor then.
1: Yeah, I mean, Sadia, he's getting really lucky at the time. You know, also Getz enjoyed really favorable public opinion. A lot of people viewed his actions as justified. You know, as you can imagine, following the shooting, the story kind of exploded in the press, gaining national media attention. Remember, this is at a time when crime in New York City was really high. And many New Yorkers were frustrated by the lack of police protection. And so a large portion of the public initially viewed Getz as a hero. And they actually gave him the name, the subway vigilante. Oh, wow. Yeah. Public opinion begins to shift, however, when new evidence is discovered, specifically when the public found out about that fifth shot, you know, the one where KB was paralyzed, you know, and like he's cowering and like, you know, just scared. Clearly, that shot was not in self-protection and many in the public felt, you know, that too. But sadly, you know, more important than just public opinion, however, this new evidence impacts Getz's case. On March 14th of 1985, the district attorney petitions the judge requesting that he allow him to resubmit the assault and attempted murder, murder charges to a grand jury. And that petition is successful and a month later... A second grand jury indicts Getz on 10 new charges, including four charges of attempted murder and four charges of assault.
2: That's great, Asad. At least he is indicted.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So after a five month process of jury selection, the criminal trial begins in April of 1987.
2: Oh, my gosh. Almost. Two and a half years after the actual incident.
1: Yeah, exactly. The jury includes several crime victims, two black individuals and one Hispanic individual. The trial goes on for several weeks as jurors listen to Getz's taped confessions, several eyewitness accounts, and the testimonies of a few of the victims.
2: So I said I want to stop you here and ask a question. Now, this incident happened in December 1984. And the jury is listening to taped confessions of the perpetrator, but also eyewitness accounts. And I wonder how accurate they would be. Do you remember what happened two, two and a half years ago? Because I surely don't, Us.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a great question. And the assumption is when it comes to something as as prolific as this is that you know police are interviewing people and getting their accounts you know right then and there and that's in the record and so maybe that helps jog people's memories or and things like that but yeah i think you're right like a lot of these trials happen years after the fact and i think that impacts you know people's memories and then there's also you know people might not be alive anymore by the time things go to trial so yeah there's it's these big delays you know I,
2: oh i so said that took a dark turn <laughs> i wasn't going there but sure why not it's well, a true no, but, crime you know, podcast <laughs>
1: <laughs> De- death is a part of it but yeah you know i think that i think it's not uncommon to see these trials take place you know years later and that, that certainly is going to affect the outcome some for the better and some for the worse hmm. So, Sadia, back to the story, KB shooting is one of the most problematic aspects of Getz's case and is therefore a significant point of focus within the trial. And Sadia basically, as they're trying to figure out their defense, the defense team wants to argue that the fifth shot, that one that paralyzed Troy KB, had actually never happened. They're trying to say it never occurred and that KB had been merely shot in the initial round of bullets fired by Getz.
2: Oh, wow. So facts don't matter anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, facts don't matter, it seems. And in order to do this, essentially, the defense team has to convince the jury to disregard Getz's own confession of his final shot. And he argues that Getz had been nervous and disturbed at the time of the interviews and in his unstable state had just merely described a fantasy situation rather than what actually happened.
2: Wow, said That's absolutely ridiculous. I hope, I really hope that jury didn't buy it.
1: Uh, Well, you're not going to be happy, Sadia. Unfortunately, the jury eats up the defense argument, essentially erasing the fifth shot from history. Even worse, the defense team pays $1,500 to a ballistics expert to recreate the scenario for the jury. And so this guy actually hires four roughly dressed African-American boys to stand in for the victims in an attempt to inspire a sense of fear within the jurors. Can you imagine, Sadia, wow. like like someone is really preying on, you know, people's unconscious or conscious, you know, racism by parading, you know, four stand-ins actors. It just, <laughs> I can't even envis- envision this being allowed, you know, today, but it probably still happens.
2: It probably still happens, I said, you're absolutely right.
1: Ultimately, the defense's methods work. In June of 1987, the jury votes to find Getz guilty of illegal possession of a loaded firearm outside the home, but they ultimately decide to acquit Getz on all the other charges, including the four attempted murder charges. And the reason why? They basically felt that he lacked the motivation to kill the teenagers. And so, after it all ends, Getz gets about six months in jail, one year of psychiatric treatment, five years of probation and 200 hours of community service and a fine of $5,000. And then on an appeal later on, his sentence is actually changed to one year in prison with no probation. And he ultimately ends up serving just about eight months in prison.
2: This is so absurd, said. First of all, he lacked the motivation. As far as I remember, he ran out of bullets. So there was a lot of motivation there, right? And in his videotaped confession gets quite literally claims that he was going to kill them all, murder them all. So this is such BS, Asad. And it saddens me. It saddens me how messed up our judicial system, our law enforcement is against certain communities, right?
1: That's a great point, Sadia. And that's actually a point made by Troy KB's personal lawyer, C. Vernon Mason. Here he is in an interview. The most feared uh, person who interacts in the criminal justice system, I think by the majority of the community, are young black men. And uh, I think that fit right in the stereotype. And it was the jury that reacted to that. It was poor Bernie, you know, with the gun on the subway right before Christmas. Poor Bernie, who had been mugged
2: before. This is absolutely true, Asad. The jury was certainly quite forgiving of Geth's actions. And now there may be external factors. What was the crime rate like at the time? But even then, Asad, an attempted murder of four teenage boys, that cannot be justified, Asad. That cannot be. So did the victims receive any Any justice, like justice of any kind?
1: Yeah. So, you know, at the same time as the criminal trial, three of the victims file civil lawsuits against Getz for the injuries that they've sustained. And unfortunately, Getz wins two of those cases, but loses to KB with a jury finding Getz liable of reckless and deliberate infliction of emotional distress and they end up awarding KB a total of forty-three million dollars in damages, which is awesome. However, gets immediately files for bankruptcy and essentially refuses to pay the forty-three million. Of course he
2: does. Of course he does.
1: And to this day he still hasn't paid KB.
2: This is so absurd, Asad. But given all this, let's get to our primary question of the episode. Should the Getz shooting be considered a hate crime?
1: Yeah. What are your thoughts?
2: Asad, I think on the one hand, I do understand why Getz was paranoid because of what had happened to him in the past. And in his mind, this was just an instance of self-protection in the face of perceived danger given the high crime rates in New York at the time during the 1980s. But at the same time, I wonder if we were to flip the script or if we were to switch four black teenagers with four white teenagers mm. doing the same thing, asking for $5, how would Gets have reacted? So I'm sure there is a racial element to this story. And the fact that Gets reacted so poorly, and his action was so violent, and his reaction was so visceral. Has something to do with the kids being black? I don't have any doubt in my mind that their race played a huge role in how gets reacted.
1: Yeah, Sadia, I think that you're exactly right, and I think you know it probably was informed a little bit by his previous mugging, in which you know he was assaulted by black men and injured severely.
2: Asit, I also want to draw listeners' attention to the fifth and the final shot, right, mm, against yeah, right. KB, because that by no means was one of self-preservation or threat of danger, right? Because by then, threat of danger had already been extinguished, right? and it seemed to be out of malice and hate. Remember what Getz said, you seem to be alright. Here's another.
0: It's that wild. doesn't yeah, right. that
2: doesn't sound to me a quotation from a person who was frazzled, who was disturbed, who was trying to protect himself.
1: Right. Yeah, Sadi, I think I go back to in, in this scenario, why was the immediate reaction for him to pull the gun and start shooting and then after he's stopped the initial round, like you said, go up to someone and then clearly shoot them at point blank range it, it makes no sense he could have walked away even when he was on the train he could have gotten up and gone to another seat like there are thousands of things that he could have done differently. he could have gotten off at the next stop to prevent what happened and I think I'm with you I think that this there's a lot of it's hard to say that he was racist or whatnot but there was definitely for me I think there was elements of prejudice that, that went into him shooting before teens.
2: And by the way, Asad, we do have additional information about Getz. Apparently, he had a history of using racist language, admitting in a deposition for the civil lawsuit to disparaging minorities at a building meeting prior to the 1984 shooting. So he is someone who's used racial slurs in the past, Mm. who has a history of Being less tolerant towards minorities, I guess. So there is this element of his personality that came out during this altercation, which obviously became extremely violent. And he ended up shooting four teenage boys.
1: Yeah, so sadly, where do you land? I, I think I land that this should have been prosecuted as a hate crime. Where do you land?
2: It should have been, I said, because I, in every case, I ask myself, would the perpetrator have reacted similarly if we changed the race or religious, ethnic identity of victims? And most of the times, I said, it seems the answer is no. Yeah. So to me, it should have been prosecuted as a hate crime.
1: Yeah, I think we're in agreement.
2: So where are Getz and the four victims today, Acid?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So Getz remains an active figure in New York, actually. For years after the shooting, he continued to receive attention from the press, doing interviews for people like Larry King Live and others. And he continues to stand by his actions, claiming that while the shooting of the four men may have had a negative impact on the trajectory of his own life, it was ultimately good for New York City because it forced them to address crime.
2: Wow, I said, yay for the wild, wild west here.
1: Yeah, it's I'm with so you on that. It's so crazy,
2: right? <laughs> yeah. And why do we always make celebrities out of these problematic individuals? Yeah. I never Seems understood that. that. Yeah, why absolutely. would Larry King interview him? Seriously, yeah. why would he?
1: Yeah. You know, and get this, uh, the, after everything that he did in 2001, Gets ran for mayor of New York City. No, and then shit. in 2005, he ran for the New York City public advocate both of those attempts were unsuccessful and then just to note like you know in 2013 he was arrested for selling marijuana to an undercover cop but managed to escape those charges as well and he now i guess spends his time living in manhattan as a vegetarian activist nursing injured squirrels around the city
2: oh my god that's it (laughs) i don't even have Words to describe what I'm feeling right now. So this guy shoots four teenagers without hesitation, but he cares deeply about injured squirrels. Good for him. I wish he did not live in Manhattan. I wish he did not live in New York, but he does. And a vegetarian activist? What the hell?
1: Yeah. It's a really interesting, for sure.
2: What about the teenagers, Asad?
1: So sadly... Sadia several of the teens continued to run into problems with the law after the shooting in May of 1985 just five months after being shot Ramzier allegedly raped and robbed a pregnant woman at gunpoint on a rooftop in the Bronx in March of 1986 he was convicted of rape robbery sodomy sexual abuse assault and criminal use of a weapon and sentenced to 25 years in state prison. And sadly, in December of 2011, on the 27th anniversary of the shooting, actually, Ramsey was found dead in a hotel room at the age of 45. Meanwhile, Canty spent over two years in a drug rehab center where he sought to better himself, and then he went on to take vocational training as an auto mechanic. And sadly, you know, it's hard to find current information for Alan and KB, but we can only hope that they're doing well and have managed to lead happy and healthy lives.
2: I so said this is so sad and disturbing. Looking at what became of these four teenage boys, and we keep going back to questions that you and I have raised several times on this podcast. What does true rehabilitation look like, right? Putting people in prison. How does it impact them? How does it change their life trajectories? It just saddens me said there is no good ending to this horrific tragedy that happened in 1984. I can mm-hmm. only hope that our communities, our society in general, can provide a healing environment for disturbed teenagers and create a place where every single person feels safe and is not judged by their mere existence.
1: Yeah, I completely agree.
2: So, Asad, how can listeners help?
1: Yeah, so sadly, while there's no kind of direct way to support the victims after, you know, 40 years. You know, you can kind of aid in the overall fight against these types of crimes and discriminatory actions by taking part in things like supporting Black Lives Matter or other, you know, nonprofit organizations such as the National Action Network or the Grassroots Law Project. We'll have links to many of those in the show notes.
2: Thank you again for listening to Invisible Heat. If you want to learn more, check out links in the show notes about the case. Please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story that you think we should cover. You can reach us at info at invisibleheatpodcast.com. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. And by the way, we reached... 100 followers on Instagram today.
1: No, oh, that's great. So
2: help us build our Instagram. Mm-hmm. In fact, our social media presence. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast.
1: And we'd also like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Emmanuel monahan and Paramachal Pravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Rafaleon Media and Immigrantly. We'll be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until then, I'm Asad Butt,
2: And I'm Sadia Khan.